Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me today is Tim Malloy, the editor-in-chief of Movie Maker Magazine. Movie Maker is for anyone who loves movie making. It's focused on the art and the craft of movies and cinematic TV. And it offers profiles, advice, insider tips, and product reviews that readers can use to make smart, informed decisions about what they watch and about what they create. The magazine has featured pretty much every prominent movie maker you can think of on its cover. Its print edition is published quarterly, while its digital home, moviemaker.com, is continually updating its features and late-breaking content. Tim and I discussed this year's Oscar nominations, revisited the Barbie and Oppenheimer phenomenon, pondered what constitutes cinematic television, and Tim laid out how Movie Maker magazine distinguishes itself among other publications covering the entertainment industry. It was a super fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And as always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow and share. Now on to my conversation with Tim Malloy. Hello, Tim Malloy. Welcome to Making Media Now. It's great to be here and to be the least acclaimed of all of your incredible guests. Oh, hardly. Please. <laughs> We're starting right away with undue modesty. <laughs> so you and I are chatting uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Oscar nominations yeah. uh, having been announced and true to form. Uh, they they carry with them some controversy. But yeah. as editor-in-chief of Movie Maker Magazine, what is your day like the day of the Oscar announcements? Well, I probably shouldn't admit this, but our day is not that different from a typical day. Okay, We're really trying to have a low barrier to entry for people. And we want people at all skill levels and all levels of the industry to feel really welcome and to feel like they can make a movie. So we don't spend a ton of time with Oscar prognostications and, you know, this person deserves this award and this person deserves that award. We're really trying to write stories that will um, get people to want to make their movie and might give them some practical advice on how to make their movie. And also Movie Maker is the only publication in this area that actually does help people make their movie because we also do production services. Um so, you know, we love the Oscar movies. I mean, we had um, Margot Robbie talking about Barbie four years ago hmm. in Movie Maker magazine. Um, and then we had... Um, was she Emerald. attached to the project at that time? It was almost at the end of the interview that we went, and you're making Barbie, right? And she's like, <laughs> yeah, can't say too much about that. Um, but we got to look at her bookshelves in the Lucky Chap offices, her production office, and see all the stuff that she had upcoming. And it was like they're going to be very big very soon. Like as big as she is an act, as an actress, she's going to be a much bigger deal as a producer at some point, yeah. or as big a deal as a producer. And that's, that's turned true. As I mentioned that controversy, one of the elements of the controversy is that uh, she got snubbed, so to speak. She did not get nominated and she plays Barbie and the yeah. director, Greta Gerwig did not get nominated either. And uh, any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I never want to say um, this is a snub because I haven't seen honestly all of the best picture nominees. Mm-hmm. I still need to see. Um, I still need to see Zone of Interest, and I know it's going to be an intense watch. So I'm kind of waiting to get in the right mindset. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying it's necessarily better than the other nominees or this or that, but it does seem like a very surprising phenomenon. I think Billy Crystal had the joke about one of those films a few years ago that was nominated for best picture, but wasn't nominated for best director. So it's like the movie that directed itself. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it feels Bar- like without fail every year, there's at least one instance of that. Yeah. Barbie's a movie that when you first hear about it, you go, that sounds terrible. That's like the worst idea for a movie I've ever, I've ever heard. And then they deliver this movie. That's fantastic. It is a huge crowd pleaser and is the biggest box office film of 2023. And it could have gone very wrong. And the credit goes to Margot Robbie and her team and Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach for putting it together and making it work yeah. and making it something that really crossed all demographic lines that appealed to everyone. It's a fun watch. Like how often are movies good and fun and acclaimed and, and everything else. So it does seem like an oversight to me not to give Greta Gerwig the credit. At least Robbie is nominated for producer because for best picture, because she produced the movie sure. with her, with her husband, um, Tom Ackerley and other people on her team. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting, as I said, it does seem like, you know, there's somebody, I use the word snub, you did not, who seems to be snubbed every year, particularly since they expanded the best picture category. I think it's, are, is it always 10 or up to 10? I lost, <laughs> I actually lost count. It used to be like five. Yeah, it was five. It, it, it feels was like they, they, they doubled them. And, yeah. you know, uh, it, it, it almost feels like it's, you know, Oscars continuing search for relevance uh, with certain audiences, uh, particularly if you look back at the last few years of the Oscar winners, and there's really no correlation to box office. I mean, most of the winners are, uh, they're sort of serious films. A lot of times they're feel-bad films, as, as they've been labeled, and I've enjoyed many of them, but they do kind of fall into that category, and they haven't been huge box office hits. Barbie, uh, as you just said, um, you know, it was a, for the most part, of a critical hit, certainly a hit in terms of a, a cultural phenomenon, and it's made over a billion dollars globally. Yeah. What, what happens on Oscar night, I guess, uh, remains to be seen. I think Oppenheimer wins everything. <laughs> That's kind of my guess. That If I had to put money right now, that would that would be my guess, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm hopelessly biased in that when we're putting out a new issue of Movie Maker, I tend to lock myself into a movie soundtrack and just listen to it over and over again. And lately, it's been the Oppenheimer soundtrack, um, which is just incredible. And so I have Oppenheimer on the brain all the time. Yeah. Um, love Christopher Nolan. You know, I think it's a very fascinating and well-done movie. So I'm not... I'm not angry if it wins everything by any means. Um, I think it's a really fantastic movie. Um, I just, I'd like to see Greta Gerwig and <laughs> yeah, yeah. the more I, folks that they do. I saw, I saw Oppenheimer in IMAX twice, and, <sighs> and then I watched it on pay-per-view a couple of weeks ago. And, oh. you, you know, it was, it was one of those movies where after I had seen it the first time, and I, it, it was really the... It had been a while since I felt this way. I came out of Oppenheimer the first time feeling like, all right, this is one of those movies I'm going to be going to repeatedly yeah. for a bunch of different reasons. And, you know, there's a lot of story going on there. Yeah. And, and at least for me, when I came out of it the third time, I really felt like I had a grasp on who was who and what was what and when was when um, yeah. much more fully than I did after the, fir- the first and second viewings. 
Nolan movies get better and better. And sometimes they feel a little dense or a little bit crazy the first time you see them or even a little um, hectic. Yeah. But, you know, the more I watch The Dark Knight, the better a movie it is. When mm -hmm. you realize that the Joker isn't this crazy person, he's an extremely methodical person who's doing the art of war routine of acting crazy because he's very, very meticulous in his planning and diabolical in his planning, that becomes a better movie. And then when you pick up on some of the undertones and everything else, it becomes a better movie. And then Dark Knight Rises becomes a better movie when you watch that back to back with um, with Batman Begins and realize how many parallels there are. And I think that's, that's true of a lot of Nolan movies. I mean, Inception becomes better the more you watch it. He really does layer things on. Um, Emerald Fennell, who directed Saltburn, which is another mm -hmm. Lucky Chop film, sorry to keep bringing them up, um, has the same quality, where the more you watch her films, uh, the better they get. And that's uh, that's another one that I think is kind of a, uh, we're not using the word snub, I'm not using the word snub, but I'm uh, right. surprised not to see nominated. <laughs> overlooked? Can we say overlooked? <laughs> I think overlooked, personally. Okay. We'll go with overlooked. You're the editor, uh, after all. <laughs> <laughs> need a better word for snubbed. So let's move away from the Oscars for a minute and talk a little bit about Tim Malloy and talk about Movie, Make Mag Movie Maker Magazine. First, uh, give us the give us the, the the Tim Malloy story. What's the Tim Malloy elevator speech? Where are you from? How'd you get where you are? Um, I grew up in San Pedro, California, which is the harbor of Los Angeles. It's in the city of Los Angeles, but no one in Los Angeles knows where it is. Do you remember, a little trivia for you, do you remember a sitcom called the San Pedro Beach Bums? Yep. Yep. Okay. We talk about that all the time. We talk about <laughs> the musical suspects, which was filmed there. Oh, yeah. Robert Town, the screenwriter of Chinatown is from there. Robert um, Town? Yeah. Which is why more of, more of the movie Chinatown takes place in San Pedro than in Chinatown. Um, wow, that so, is good trivia. Yeah, it's a fascinating place. It's a very diverse place. It's one of the, not only like racially and ethnically diverse, but one of the most politically diverse parts of, of Los Angeles. I think it's still pretty much down the middle, um, liberal conservative, which is pretty unusual for LA. Sure. Um, just a lot of different walks of life. Um, a lot of the cops live there. Um, so I sometimes call it the Staten Island of Los Angeles. <laughs> um, and that's where I uh, became a person. And I love San Pedro very much. And I went to UC Santa Barbara in school. And when I was in school, uh, I was at the school newspaper and we sued the UC regents over open meetings violations. And that's where I got really into journalism. Interesting. And, um, yeah. Um, became a reporter for the Associated Press, editorial assistant, then a reporter. And spent 10 years doing very, very straight news, cops, courts, politics, whatever they, whatever GA stuff they gave me, um, a lot of environmental reporting. And then uh, during the recession, became terrified of working for a website and thought I'd better jump into this hot new um, online thing. And so in about 2008, I started doing online uh, entertainment reporting. And was that, was that as a freelancer? No, I worked, uh, one of my friends at the Associated Press went over to tvguide.com, okay. uh, Jennifer Rockland, she was great, um, yep. and she hired me, and then I went and worked at The Wrap, which is one of the major mm. trades out of LA, um, it's the only one not owned by Penske Media, um, Sharon Waxman did it all on her own, really started it in her backyard, yep. and built it from nothing, and I worked there for about 10 years with a couple small interruptions, um, and then in 2019, my wife and I were looking for something. We're both looking for something else to do career-wise. Um, 
her parents were small business people. They were Irish immigrants who came over in like 1970 and always worked for themselves. And she said, you know, we should just take over some sort of business or start some sort of business. And we saw that Movie Maker magazine was for sale. Uh, we didn't actually know very much about Movie Maker at the time, but we did research and, you know, negotiated for a long period of time. And we now uh, have a small business loan and own a magazine and a website. That's wild. Yeah, yeah so I, um, I think when I was reading, the, the Movie Maker was established in 93? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was established by a guy named Tim Reese. And are, and are you guys just the second owners and publishers? Yeah, um, it's never been in a fire. It's never been in a flood. It was in good condition. <laughs> um, <laughs> Very but, low miles, only read on Sundays. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, there were some things that we thought we could improve a lot. Um, there wasn't a podcast. There wasn't much of a video presence. There wasn't really much of an online presence. And we thought that we could really increase the cadence of things online. And we could also do some podcasting and some video and things like that and keep expanding. Um, we thought the magazine was in great shape, so we yep. didn't really change much there. So um, the, the, the print edition still exists? The quarterly print edition still exists. Okay. It happened yeah. a month in a while, um, yep. even before us, but yep. we're still able to get out a quarterly edition, which I know sounds laughably easy. <laughs> to no, print it doesn't all. actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an ex-print person. Um, I've worked at newspapers and things like that, but yeah. um, it was a it's very hard to get out a print project um, knowing that if you make a mistake, you can't go back and fix it. It's there. When you were doing, um, when you were starting out in journalism, uh, any particular role models whose careers you looked at and said, wow, I'd like to, you know, I, I, I like the path that that person took. Um, I didn't really have like a famous one. I mean, besides, I guess everybody had Woodward and Bernstein. Mm -hmm. Um, and also Amy Wallace was a reporter at the LA Times who covered the UC system when I was at the UC. And I thought she did an amazing job and had a lot of like really dug in and had a lot of verve in her writing and mm -hmm. was always very willing to ask hard questions, but also sort of stay level and not get into these like sort of shouting matches or anything like that. I liked her. I thought she was cool. Basically, I thought she was really cool um, and liked her stories. And then my first bosses at the AP, I was a baby, you know, I was 22 years old when I went in there, um, were Sue Cross and Steve Elliott. And they are both still in my head every single day. Um, Steve Elliott is like, if you can imagine like a blonde Tom Cruise, okay. um, and like sort of like in one of the like cooler Tom, like sort of more, not really a, a man, of few words, I would say, but the things he said were like so direct and pointed. And sometimes so you Tom go, Cruise oh. in collateral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go Minus like the sociopathology. <laughs> he's not a, he was a very good person. I haven't talked to him in a while, but he was a very good guy. Never killed anyone. Um, but was very direct and could just like cut down a story really quickly to its bare elements. And that's had a big impact on how we write Movie Maker, honestly. He'd be shocked if he ever heard me saying this because it's been, you know, almost 30 years. Yep. But, um, um we really try to avoid a lot of superfluous nonsense and a lot of um, the sort of intellectualizing and intellectualizing is fine, but the sort of bloviating and opinionating that pervades a lot of entertainment reporting where okay. people are sort of writing you an essay every time they do an interview with someone. And sometimes you just really want to cut to the chase and find out what the story is actually about. Um, 
we call it sort of the Wikipedia school of writing where people will give a director's entire history mm. and give their entire p opinion of that history. And then finally ask the director some questions. And our approach is more just say the most interesting thing the director said, like they're not here to see you. The people are here to hear what David Fincher thinks. How do you describe the editorial mandate of of movie maker? Are you because within that space, you know, when you think of uh, there's the Hollywood Reporter and there's Variety uh, there. I don't even is premiere still around. Did they go down? Did they go under? I think they have an online edition. I should know this because I used to really like it when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, so did I. I, I really enjoyed that. But I, in you know, there are some publications uh, that you know, you know live in print, but they also have a digital presence, um, and they are more about the show than the business. And then there are others that are more about the business, and they're you know they're talking about Bob Iger and they're talking about Zazl uh, Zavloff and you know the the guys running studios and guys running um, you know agencies, etc. Where does Movie Maker come? Down? down uh in that uh, in that jungle of publications yeah well variety and thr and the rap and deadline have been known as the trades for a long time and i mm -hmm. think of us as a craft mm. um interesting we're dedicated to craft we don't care that much who's at the top of the studio we're not going to fan out about who on this show is dating who um what we're really interested in is what inspired you to make this how did you go about bringing your vision to life um, who gave you money for it? Uh, what did you have to do to get the things that you needed? How did you get that particular shot? Just anything that might help a filmmaker who is there with an idea, they have a script, they have a dream for getting this film made. They may not have much money. They may have another full-time job, um, but they're looking for whatever shortcuts they can find to their dream. Mm -hmm. Um, if that means ways to raise money, if that means a better, cheaper camera, if that means a deal on post-production services, we want to be able to help them in some real tangible way. Um, I love, you know, I read Variety and THR and the Rapid Deadline all the time, but it can get really discouraging when you're reading about these $200 million deals for someone and it, or how they made a, uh, you know, a spaceship for only $40 million. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't really apply to you at all. And you just keep thinking, well, what do I need to do to break it? Like, maybe I should make a movie with a $40 million spaceship. How am I going to get, what am I going to do? Like, it, do I need to go back and work on relationships? Should I have gone to this school instead of this school? Um, there's so many ways into filmmaking and we kind of look for the most accessible ways into filmmaking. Um, write a script about something that you really care about. Try to write for the resources that you have and try to get your thing made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you know about your audience, your your readers, the the folks who are visiting you online versus the people that are subscribing to the quarterly print edition? Yeah, there's tears for sure. Um, the people who actually follow Movie Maker, the people who actually subscribe to Movie Maker, subscribe to the print magazine and go to the website every day are either filmmakers or wannabe filmmakers mm -hmm. or very very interested in the craft of filmmaking really want to know how it's done yep. um they have some ideas whether they're at the stage of i should make a movie or at the stage of i've finished five screenplays and i just need to get one of these made or they're making shorts um or they finished a couple low budget features they are actively always on the prowl looking to make their next movie and to advance um that's the core audience that's the people who we 
are really writing for fundamentally. Then we have other levels of audience. We have people who just come across us on Google. Um, and then we have people who get our content through syndication. And one of the weird realities of media now is we probably get as much money from the people who just find us on syndication as we do from the core audience. So, so explain a little bit about how that works. Um, articles that go out to Yahoo, that go out to MSN, that go out to, go out to Apple, go out to Smart News. Um, and I write a fair amount of, I'm going to unapologetically say, fun clickbait. For the, <laughs> um, I wrote a gallery today that was called Behold the 12 Greatest Talking Dog Movies of All Time. <laughs> a listicle. And, and it was a listicle, and it was so much fun to write, and it will probably make more revenue for Movie Maker than the interview I did two days ago with an Oscar-winning um, filmmaker who has a new film at Sundance. Uh, that's just life in the big city. <laughs> that is um, life in the big and the small town. <laughs> but the dog gallery allows us to have the resources and the space and the time to interview that filmmaker about their important project. Interesting. Interesting. So the other, uh, uh, I guess we would call them venues where that story would appear, uh, are they, do those providers, uh, content providers subscribe uh, to your service so that they so that they have that uh, syndicated piece we actually have to sign up to go through them um, oh okay you have to sign up to join smart news you have to sign up to join apple you have to sign up to join msn um, and then you get a share of their advertising tell me a little bit about what in your role as editor and editor in chief what's your day to day what's your week to week how far out are you looking at uh, uh you know assigning stories and editing stories and publishing stories the tent poles are the four issues every year so mm -hmm. i'm always trying to figure out what is the cover going to be who's going to be on it who's going to write the cover story and what are the big stories going to be in that issue um usually in addition to sort of an attention grabbing you know, big person on the front page, a really well-known filmmaker or star. Um, we're doing something that's of real value to the core readership, something like the 50 best places to live and work as a movie maker. Okay. For an example, the latest issue has Ethan Cohen and Trisha Cook on the cover talking about their new movie, Driveway Dolls, um, and about their kind of fascinating dynamic, their long, unconventional, but happy marriage. Um, and how it fueled Driveaway Dolls. So we've got one of the Cohen brothers and also his longtime collaborator and spouse, who I don't think people know as much about, right. uh, sort of getting, getting the attention. Mm -hmm. Then we have, within the issue, the 50 best places to live and work as a movie maker, which is a very deeply researched, long, long process-driven um, story. Uh, telling what, are the, what were the metrics? Uh, tax incentives, affordability, uh -huh. film scene they have, filmmakers who are actively working there, production, um, post-production facilities, equipment rental facilities, um, accessibility to New York and Los Angeles, um, accessibility to other prominent film com uh, film towns. For mm -hmm. instance, if you're in Las Cruces, New Mexico, you're also close to El Paso, Texas, and you can sort of benefit from the resources in both towns. So that's like our big servicey feature. And then we might have in there a film that was made for $5,000 yep. that someone put together with their family um, by, by calling in favors. And people might get inspiration from, from the cover story. They might get sort of real-world practical advice from the 
where should I live story. And then they might get some just, oh, you know, maybe I should try out that camera um, for my next short uh, from the, you know, low budget film feature. Yeah. So that's really a, that, that's a big differentiator from some of the other publications that we've mentioned in, in the sense that you re, it does really seem like you're focusing, as, as, as you say, on the art and the craft, kind of on the nuts and the bolts. You know, how did, the, how did this idea go from idea to an actual project and then get out into the world? I note that Movie Maker describes itself as being focused on the art and craft of movies and cinematic TV. Yeah. Uh, what's your take on the on the current state of cinematic TV? I've, I've been reading a lot of late that, you know, the golden age that probably, you know, started when Tony Soprano walked down the driveway and picked up that newspaper back 25 years ago. And then it ended <laughs> sometime around the end of I don't know if it was Mad Men or maybe it was around COVID or, or something like that. But I'm reading that. um you know, don't don't get your hopes up for for more of that ilk. Yeah, I was the TV editor of the Rap from about 2012 to about 2014, and I got to interview all of those amazing showrunners. Um, mm. Matthew Weiner for Mad Men was incredible. You know, the Breaking Bad team, Vince Gill Gilligan is mm -hmm. brilliant and incredibly nice, which is strange a strange combination. <laughs> Uh, and all these Imagine others, that. <laughs> just, I'm not saying that the other ones aren't incredibly nice, but Gilligan is like notably nice. Yeah. Um, and all these other, all these other just great, great writers and producers and showrunners. And it did feel like this is a really special time to be covering TV. And I have heard, you know, this is the end of TV as we knew it. It's never going to be this good again, but I don't know. I think we're in the middle of a really good time for movies. And I can remember around 2012, 13, 14, hearing that movies were done. Yeah, um, exactly. So now movies are ascendant again and TV is on its way down. And what happens a lot of the time is something gets really, really, really successful, like Netflix did during the pandemic, and then can't possibly maintain that momentum. And so then people need a story and they say, oh, it's dead now, it's over. But I think these things are cyclical. Mm -hmm. I really I mean, I, I'm a big music fan and I keep hearing that rock music is dead and things like that. And I'm sure in the next five or 10 years, there'll be some band that'll be bigger than Taylor Swift. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, it feel on the cinematic TV side, you know, it, it feels like, um, the, the obituary for so-called prestige television has been written pretty regularly for the past three years or so. Uh, it felt more real, I think, from this reader's standpoint over the last six months or so, probably combined with, you know, production stoppages around strikes, mm -hmm. you know, and whatnot. And honestly, when you look at something like what was done with the HBO brand, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it was HBO, then HBO Max. Now it's just Max, which is sort of this yard sale of all manner of content. Uh, and I, and I, I think that the, you know, how the prestige rises from the dreck of all of that yeah. becomes a bit of a challenge. Yeah. You know, William Goldman is my favorite screenwriter and he has that famous line that no one, he has a lot of famous lines. Yeah. One of them is no one knows anything. About <laughs> and it just is always true. The first issue of Movie Maker I ever edited came out in January of 2020. And I said, movies have never been better. Um, you know, we've just come off two of the highest grossing years at the box office. We have all these 
fantastic films coming out. I mean, The Irishman had just come out. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had just come out. Parasite had just come out. 2019 was an incredible movie year. And then two months later, the pandemic sets in and everything comes completely crashing down. I was, it was just like I cursed. I felt like I never predict anything ever again, never make any declarations ever again. I was so totally wrong. I had no idea that things were about to go very bad. And you hear now, um, you know, coming off of the strikes, understandably, a rough 2023, people are very down in the dumps and hopeless about what's coming next. But it doesn't take a lot of successes for a lot of other things to follow suit. I mean, horror was dead at one point, and you had some major horror films, and then it was an incredibly hot genre. I hear now that comedy is dead, but someone will make a great comedy, and other people will follow suit and will have more great comedies. It's just everything, every business has been declared Every aspect of Hollywood has been declared dead so many times in the last hundred years and keeps coming back. Disney was considered completely doomed numerous times. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now they're again in a rough patch compared to the success that they had. Yep. But they had their 2010s were unbelievable. Um, it would be impossible to sustain the success that they had. When you made the move from uh, journalism that that wasn't focused uh, on movie making and, and movie makers, uh, what particular skills were most important that you carried over uh, in in being able to deliver a story and tell a story to your readers? Um, moving from like straight journalism to entertainment journalism, mm-hmm. um, this is tricky because I think the most valuable skills are the fundamental skills of you know, be able to write quickly, be able to write accurately, mm-hmm. fair. Um, if you're saying, if someone is being accused of wrongdoing, call them for comment. No matter how vile you personally find them to be, you have to call them for comment and give them a chance to voice their opinion um, or voice their defense, their vigorous defense. And I do think you're kind of rewarded now in the current climate for not calling people for comment and for just banging out your your quick incendiary mm-hmm. story um, and blowing things out of proportion. And it, it always kind of surprises me when there's this viral story of this person said this terrible thing and they are to be shunned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you call them and talk to them and you go, Oh, they didn't really say that. Yeah. And also that's not how they really feel. And it's a lot more nuanced than that. Isn't it? Talking to real people is always shockingly complex and, nuanced and interesting and is never the same as they hate all dogs or whatever it is yeah it's the it's the hot take versus the deep dive and you know one one is sort of that sugar high and and the other one uh you know requires diligence and and complexity and taking a little bit of time and i have done both like I'm not gonna lie, I've worked at a wire service that is the AP is extremely meticulous and extremely careful and vets things very well. I've worked at Frontline, not on the journalistic side, but on the marketing side, where they are extremely they are as careful as you can be. The AP and Frontline are like the gold standard of what you hope your news will be, where they are super careful and super precise and do everything by the book and write. And then you know I've worked at places where it was. Everyone else has this story. This person said this outrageous thing. We need to write it up to you. Um, mm-hmm. We called them for comment. They're not commenting. Oh, well, uh, go. And those stories do very well. They do really well. And you try to just follow the same rules, whether you're covering something for the AP or or doing a quick, a quick hit 
I hope this goes viral type story. Um, you try to call people for comment. You try to be fair. You try to quote them as accurately as you possibly can. And you try not to um, put words in their mouth or misrepresent what they said for the sake of clicks. And I think a lot of people do the, like, he said what yep. type of thing that we don't do. <laughs> I mean, movie maker just doesn't, I'm just not interested. It's not, it's not satisfying or fun for me in any way to do the outrage machine. Um, this person said this shocking thing when Martin Scorsese was accused of saying he hated Marvel movies or something. And what he actually said was much more nuanced than that. Like what he actually said was that he didn't want theaters to be taken over by one particular type of movie. Yeah. And who could disagree with that? Who could yeah. ever disagree with that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you have a, uh, a staff of, of writers or are, are you working with a team of freelancers usually? Tremendous freelancers. Um, Josh and Sinias wrote the story that I mentioned about Ethan Cohen and Trisha Cook. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of freelancers who we go back to again and again who do a great job, who unfortunately keep getting hired at other places and being unable to write for us. Um, Margot Sapel is our lead writer. She does a fantastic job. Um, I write quite a bit. Our publisher is my wife, Deirdre McCarrick, um, who's been known to write from time to time and runs our production services side, helping people actually make their movies. We have a great ad team. Um, our uh, our art direction is an incredibly important part of the magazine. Our Ryan Ward and Mitch Hansen, who do a great job making my silly little words look important and cool because of their great fonts and colors and everything else. <laughs> they just do a beautiful job making everything look good. The magazine is like a great visual spectacle every time. Sure. Totally because of them. And they do yeah. such a... Phenomenal job. And so, yeah, we have a very small, very dedicated, very hardworking team. The ads team works super hard as well. And then we have a couple of podcasts. Um, there's a podcast called The Industry that my friend Dan Delgado does that anyone who's listening to this will like The Industry. It's sort of finding the weirdest, oldest Hollywood stories and figuring out how they happened. Very he did cool. a dive on the history of the Pink Panther movies, which I I thought I would be totally uninterested in and absolutely loved. <laughs> and then we do a podcast called low key with my friends um aaron lanton and keith benny where we just sort of talk about movies that we like we talked about saltburn last night um so yeah we have it, it is a very when i worked at the rap i had like 25 people as direct reports and it's hard to have that many people honestly yeah. um, now i like know everybody by closely and we text back and forth and are constantly strategizing and brainstorming and it's it's the size it's the size i want um i'd like us to keep growing but i don't have any dreams of you know having a 70 person staff and getting purchased by a um <laughs> by an equity company or something right right what type of relationships are particularly important to cultivate and maintain uh when you're uh, when you're an editor when you're a writer writing particularly about the film and and cinematic television uh industries um are, are you working a lot of times with publicists are you work are you going right with people who are at the studio level um both you really appreciate the people who you can rely on um the publicists who give you a good steer and sort of personalized stuff to you in the magazine and understand what the magazine is. Um, anyone in media, I'm sure you get things for like, you need to check out this new kid's footwear. And you're like, did you Google at all before you sent this press release? You just sent this to everybody on your list. That's fine. Yeah. Um, 
So you get a lot, a lot, a lot of emails and a lot of pitches and a lot of calls. And I, I keep going back to a core group of people who I trust, um, who have good taste and will sort of not jerk us around. Um, there's the sort of game in the Hollywood press of, we will give you an interview with this person if you also interview these three people. Right, and we just right. avoid all of that nonsense. Um, we just don't have time and don't care and don't have to say yes to anything. Yeah, uh, I always wonder what kind of constraints are put on you if, you know, if you're working through a channel like that where... Uh, you know, you you're getting the access, but the expectation is it's going to be highly complimentary. It's going to be a puff piece. Yeah, I'm an AP person. I mean, I I have the Associated Press in my blood. Yep. And I'm also kind of a golden rule person in terms of media coverage. Where I think you first, we're focused mostly on the filmmaking, so we're not going to mm -hmm. say what about your girlfriend who you broke up with 30 years ago. <laughs> right. um, there's not going to be a lot of those like gotcha questions. Right. We're concerned with how you made your movie um, and what brought it about. And if the girlfriend you broke up with 30 years ago is the source of the movie, then yeah, we are going to talk about that. Right. But we're not interested in like, you know, the gotcha stuff um, or the element of surprise. And I think publicists know that. And I think that they may seek us out because they know that we're not going to surprise them with something weird. Sure. Um, and you, you do read articles all the time where it's just like, well, they kind of slipped in this strange thing and then they blew it out of proportion. And we just don't do that. Like, we're not interested in it. At the same time, we will not get pushed around. We have had publicists interject on calls because they didn't like a question um, or try to end interviews because they didn't like a question. And we really fight on those situations. Hmm. And we also turn down interviews all the time when they say they're not willing to talk about this. And we go, well, look, you know us and you know we're not um, a tabloid. Um, but we're not going to have any preconceived rules in the interview. We're just not going to do the interview. Um, we've had people say they're not talking about this aspect of their lives. And we'll, go, well, this aspect of their lives is clearly relevant to the movie that they made. The movie's about a witch hunt, okay? Um, they feel that they've been the victim of a witch hunt. We get the metaphor here. We're going to have to talk about their personal lives. Um, yeah. And sometimes publicists will say, okay, that's fair. We relent. So, you know, if they're trying to put a restriction on us, we're just not going to do the interview. I get 100 emails a day from publicists. There are plenty of worthy films to choose from. Our problem is that we can't cover as many as we'd like to. So we will go with the ones who are open and willing to have a normal human back and forth. Making media now, I have conversations with a lot of documentary filmmakers. I think a lot of our listeners are big documentary fans. Filmmakers Collaborative, who sponsors Making Media Now, works almost exclusively with documentary, independent right. documentary film right. Right. filmmakers. I'm curious if you've got any uh, finger on the pulse of what might be happening in the documentary world. I know over the last year or so, a lot of the documentary filmmakers that I've spoken with have talked about some particular challenges around distribution and yeah. the fact that you know, maybe five or so years ago, the streamers were eager for their content, but then they decided to take documentary filmmaking in-house. And so that made a, you know, a narrow window, even that more, much more narrow. Uh, I'm curious as to um, what your take on the state of documentary filmmaking might be. Boy, the ride for documentaries has been absolutely wild. It's just like you just said, because for a few years, 
they couldn't get any attention at all. Yep. And about five years ago, as you said, they started to really take off, particularly around true crime and yeah. music. Um, they were just shot out of a cannon. They were getting more money than they'd ever seen in their lives. And then it suddenly dried up. Um, really good documentaries were just making the festival circuit and getting ignored. Uh, um, and it's getting harder and harder for them. And I don't know what the answer is. I do, again, I think things are cyclical. I think that things can turn around. It only takes one good story for them to follow the follow the trend and start saying yes to more documentaries. But I love documentaries. And I think we need to find some kind of better distribution system for them. Um, maybe a better distribution system than rely on, relying on HBO and Netflix. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same the same people because i i mean i just watched a documentary by deborah granick um about a man named cos Marte, who's a former inmate who started a prison style workout called con body and her film which is at sundance is called con body versus everybody it's a six-part film mm -hmm. it's fantastic it's like so inspirational it's so real um and really gets into the difficulties of people trying to not only stay out of prison when they're released from prison but contribute to society and it proves that it can be done. This this man's story proves that it can be done. It's it's the kind of thing that you just you go. How do we get everybody in the world to be forced to watch this movie? Um, it's so you so... make them watch that, and then you make them watch Dustin Hoffman's Straight Time. <laughs> it's it's just one of those movies where you know that anybody who watches it will like it. It's just will someone see the light and give it give it the attention that it deserves? Um, and we've kicked around a lot of ideas for changing distribution and whether we would want to try to spearhead something to do that. Um, maybe filmmakers supporting other filmmakers, mm -hmm. watching each other's films and spreading the word, some sort of closed loop um, for filmmakers that could, that could expand to the general audience um, once a film gets enough upvotes or something like that. Well, you mentioned a little while back your experience working for Frontline. I, too, worked for Frontline for a, for a short period of time, and we're talking about documentaries, so we got to give a shout-out to the folks at Frontline whose 20 Days in Mariupol has been nominated for Best uh, Oscar uh, Feature Documentary. We'll, we'll see how that shakes out. Yeah, I don't really have any contact with frontline now so mm -hmm. I, I want to be clear that i'm not saying this as like these are my friends or something and i'm just oh, like, i get it yeah i was a huge fan of frontline before i briefly worked there i was amazed when they hired me um i shouldn't have left <laughs> um, i <laughs> i mean i shouldn't have left when i left everybody everything has to end but i they just do the best work they're the hardest working people and they are so clear-eyed and fair yeah, if, they are most if, definitely a gold standard. If people could see inside a frontline and what those meetings are like and how rigorously every single thing is verified, they would feel a lot better about the state of media because there are good people doing it too. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of nonsense and there's a lot of you know bad reporting, frankly, but they, like you said, gold standard. Tim Malloy, Editor-in-Chief of Movie Maker Magazine. Tim, thanks for taking the time to have this chat. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This has been a total delight. And all of our listeners, if you love movies, if you're interested in the art and craft of making movies, somebody else's movie, your own movie, uh, you know, where the best place to make the movie is, get yourself over to Movie Maker Magazine online or pony up some cash for that subscription and get the, the four issues per year. Tim, thanks again. 
Yeah, we're at moviemaker.com. Thank you so much.